So this morning I wanted to continue from what uh, Tony Bernhardt explored last week. Last week he explored right livelihood. I talked with him some. How many people were there? And did you, do you like him? Was, he, was it good? He's, he's really, um, he's a very sweet man and very, a lot of deep experience. So I wanted to continue. So how many people were not here last time? Okay, that's a big chunk. So I was going to continue with the theme of right livelihood, but take it a little further, particularly into a very deep question of how do I find and deepen my own personal vocation as to um, how I live with integrity in this life? A small question. (laughs) And so I, I wanted to continue with some of the material in Right Livelihood. And I'll do a little bit more than I was intending to do because of people's background. And, and I, um, I'm doing this partly in honor of yesterday was uh, International Workers' Day. And I want to acknowledge that and, and really um, honor that deepening of reflection on our own work, our own vocation, that is so much a part of our... Uh, Dharma path, our Dharma practice. So uh, before I say anything, though, I'd like to just invite uh, for each of us uh, a quiet reflection right now. This would be just for yourself. So I'd like you to ask yourself a few questions, and I'll just say them. Maybe say them right at the beginning so you can just take your time with them. It will take a few minutes to reflect. If I had to describe my own vocation or call it a type of work in the world that expresses my deeper intentions, what is it? What is that vocation? And then some of us may know that quite clearly, others may, it may may be less clear. But in addition to that question, I'd like to have us ask the question and reflect on it. What right now is a way to deepen that sense of vocation. What deepens my sense of my own calling, my own way of working in the world, and what takes it further right now?
So as I explore the theme of right livelihood and vocation and calling, I'd like to invite you to connect the themes that come up with your own reflection. And then we'll have a chance to talk together. I'll try to give a little more time than usual so we can explore this together. And so I want to primarily talk about two themes, the first being right livelihood and the second being the sense of vocation in which we touch and express our own personal, deep personal intentions, but also in a way touch the universal. I think vocation has this quality of both, of something very personal, but also something universal. I'll come back to that. So Tony explored some last time the theme of right livelihood. And as you know, it's uh, one of the factors on the Eightfold Path, this uh, roadmap, as it were, for uh, development. And again, it's kind of interesting that right livelihood made it to the Eightfold Path, even though we sometimes think that the path, when it was designed, was primarily for monks and nuns. So what do they have to worry about, livelihood about? <laughs> you know, don't they, they go, their livelihood is kind of taken care of. They just go and, you know, and the community basically supports them with food and with shelter and so forth. So I think it's very significant that we have these uh, aspects of the path, like right livelihood and right uh, speech as well. Sometimes we think, well, what do silent monks and nuns need right livelihood and right speech guidance for? But we certainly do. And, and it's also, I think, that right livelihood actually doesn't get as much attention as the others. And I think I would say in our communities. So it's a good one to look at. And it comes in the Eightfold Path under this set of um, three factors that are more ethical in nature. You remember the Eightfold Path has two that more have to do with wisdom. Uh, right understanding and what could be called right aspiration. And we'll actually come back to that with, in, in talking about vocation. And that sense of right, I think that's, a, you know, as I've said sometimes, that's a Victorian translation of the word sama. And the word, uh, I think a better translation would be more mature or developed. Sama, has, it's the same root etymologically as words like summary, summation, sama theologica. Uh, so it has, it has that connotation of something that's developed, mature, uh, reached a, a, a good level. So that's, uh, so we could say, so we're really talking about a way of working a sense of livelihood and work when we're mature or when, we're, when we've been developing this, uh, this question of what is my vocation, what is my work. And so the three ethical aspects of the Eightfold Path are, uh, I'll, I'll call it wise speech, um, wise action or right action, sama action, <laughs> and, then, and then livelihood. And then there are three aspects of the Eightfold Path that are connected more with meditation. Uh, right effort, and right mindfulness, and right concentration. So livelihood is on this group of three uh, connected with ethics. And it's primarily how right livelihood is framed by the Buddha. He talks about right livelihood as, particularly in the text, having to do with uh, earning a living while refraining from that, from those kinds of work which go against the ethical guidelines. That's pretty much, pretty much the, the nature of it. 
And remember, the, the core ethical guidelines are about non-harming. They're not harming physically, uh, not taking that which is not given, and then being very careful with the energies of speech, sexuality, and um, intoxicants. And so this gets translated into the understanding of livelihood. And so the, there was a kind of prohibition for Buddhist practitioners of dealing in arms or weapons, in other words, that which contributes to harming others, in the slave trade, uh, uh, also actually uh, in killing animals, being a butcher, selling meat, actually, was on this list of uh, types of livelihood which uh, a practicing Buddhist would not follow. Also uh, selling alcohol uh, or other kinds of drugs or poisons. And there also was on the list, uh, one was also not t- supposed to uh, make prophecies or tell fortunes of people, which doesn't uh, fit completely with the ethical guidelines, but it's there. And so the suggestion really is, you know, th- that was a, that's a specific list, but the meaning of right livelihood is to really ask, is my work in line with my ethics, with my values? Am I, am I working in a way which uh, is continuous with my own integrity? And so we can ask that in various ways. We can ask that very personally. Am I in my work? Do I do work which causes harm to others? Am I asked at my work to um, tell lies? That's getting closer to home, right? Because sometimes we have... In many forms of our work, we have public relations. We have advertisements. And we may ask ourselves, is that getting in a gray area ethically? Because we're really invited to have our work be, um, be really uh, ethically quite, quite uh, aligned, be in, in alignment with the values. And it gets trickier when we get into larger organizations. You know, and we get into the looking at the web of causality that's involved with our work. I think the Buddha was interested in that, you know, when he would, he would look and say, well, uh, be very careful or maybe refrain from having a living which causes, uh, in, wi- in which uh, arms are sold or in which there's some uh, helping of activities which either potentially or actually harm others. But then for us it gets complicated because what do we do about the larger impact ecologically or economically of our organizations? And uh, we can ask sometimes some very hard questions. Okay, what, you know, particularly in this age of concern over global warming, what's the ecological footprint, as it were, of my organization, of my work? you know, as well as of my activity. And this, I think, would come under a contemporary questioning of right livelihood. You know, to what extent is my work causing harm? And we're maybe maybe not so much looking for total perfection, uh, but what is, you know, in what ways am I helping? In what ways am I harming? And I know for many people, this can be a very sobering set of reflections. Maybe a work that some people may have been with for five or ten years, and they say, I'm really not happy with what this is doing in the world. And I need to shift. You know, you know I, I've had 
conversations with people who may work in uh, businesses that uh, maybe are you know, using labor from overseas or having unfair practices or having ecological impact that they're, they're not happy with. So this is, a, this is a very personal reflection. And I think it's actually a larger reflection as well. Uh, Thich Nhat Hanh wants to actually radicalize this um, reflection on right livelihood and say that in a way it's not totally personal, that in a sense we're all responsible for the systems in our, that we work with, that we're all in a sense that uh, some more than others, but we're all in a sense responsible for the ecological and ecological systems. This is what he says. Right livelihood is not just a personal matter. It is our collective karma. Suppose I am a school teacher and I believe that nurturing love and understanding in children is a beautiful occupation. I would object if someone were to ask me to stop teaching and become, for example, a butcher. But when I meditate on the interrelatedness of things, I see that the butcher is not the only person responsible for killing animals. We may think the butcher's livelihood is wrong and ours is right, but if we didn't eat meat, the butcher would not have to kill. Right livelihood is a collective matter. The livelihood of each person affects everyone else. The butcher's children might benefit from my teaching, while my, te- my children, because they eat meat, share some responsibility for the butcher's livelihood. Suppose a farmer who sells his cattle as meat wants to receive uh, mindfulness training. That farmer wants to know if he can, in light of the first training, to protect life. He feels that he gives his cattle the best conditions for their well-being. He even operates his own slaughterhouse, so there's no unnecessary cruelty inflicted on the animals when he puts an end to their lives. He inherited his farm from his father, and he has a family to support. This is a dilemma. What should he do? His intentions are good, but he has inherited his farm and his habit energies from his ancestors. Every time a cow is slaughtered, it leaves an impression on his consciousness, which will come back to him in dreams, during meditation, or at the moment of death. It is right livelihood to look after his cows when they are alive. He may have the wish to be kind to his cows and also wants the security of regular income for himself and his family. (coughs) Millions of people, he says, make their living from the arms industry, helping directly or indirectly to manufacture conventional and nuclear weapons. The U.S., Russia, France, Britain, China, and Germany are the primary suppliers of these weapons. Weapons are then sold to third world countries where the people do not need guns, they need food. To manufacture or sell weapons is not right livelihood, but the responsibility for this situation lies with all of us, politicians, economists, and consumers. We have not yet organized a compelling national debate on this problem. We have to discuss this further, and we have to keep creating new jobs so that no one has to live on the profits from weapons manufacture. If you were able to work in a profession that helps realize your idea of compassion, be grateful, and please try to create jobs proper jobs for others. <laughs> you see, so it's um, that reflection on interdependent, which is at the heart of our practice, makes this question of right livelihood not as simple. So maybe we can think that there's both, as it were, a personal dimension. What am I actually doing in my work? And am I content with the ethical nature of my livelihood? Or do I need to shift that? And then what about my social or collective responsibility, a harder set of questions. 
but one that seems to be part of looking at right livelihood. The second main theme I want to explore is this related theme of vocation, of finding what most calls us in the world. And there's, there's this very personal dimension to that, and I think there's also a kind of universal dimension. And that's what I want to explore for the rest of the talk. Historically, the sense of vocation or calling has uh, deep spiritual connotations. The, even the very words, the word vocation uh, is uh, connected etymologically. The roots are in voice, vox, is connected with vocation. And it has to do with hearing, basically hearing the voice of God telling you what you should do. What should I do with my life? The sense of vocation is this ability to listen carefully for what is most deep. And in other languages, it's like that. I know the, in uh, German, the word for career is Beruf, B-E-R-U-F. And Ruf has the same uh, meaning of call. And calling, you know, the sense of calling, it's to hear, be able to, it has to do with listening deeply and hearing what is it that I want to do. And it has uh, very deep connotations coming from several, sen- several thousand years of uh, mostly Jewish and Christian religion, and that, in fact, the very name for church is in, in Greek is ecclesia. And that ecclesia has the, also, it, the meaning is uh, those who are called, those who have heard the call about what they want to do with their lives. And so there's this deep, uh, there's this deep sense of um, <clears throat> uh, listening for one's call in the Christian and Jewish traditions from God or from something very, very deep that wants to come out. Carl Jung expressed this in a psychological way. He said this, true personality always has vocation, which acts like the law of God from which there is no escape. (laughs) Interesting. True vocation. For him, it becomes more a matter of inner listening. He says, one who has vocation hears the voice of the inner person, the voice of what one wants to do. One is called. The greatness and liberating effect of all genuine personality consists in this, that it subjects itself a free choice to its vocation. That the sense of this calling is to know what deeply what one's calling is, and then to say yes, basically. And yet this isn't so easy, is it? (laughs) I just said, oh yeah, just listen for the calling. (laughs) Do what you need to do, and everything gets taken care of. But it's actually very hard. You know, that uh, I think many of us, it's it's a struggle. That, you know, I was thinking, I was reflecting on my own sense of vocation. And often we get, quite conditioned as to what we should do, who we are, and so forth. Uh, There's a poem from Rilke in which he says, uh, no one lives his or her life. We come of age as masks. He he has this image that there's a storehouse of 
true being, our true personalities, our true natures, which is everything gets locked away and we walk around like masks in the world. Mm -hmm. And so part of the work of vocation is to know, as it were, the false voices, the, the conditioning, that which stands in the way of our true vocation. Uh, some of you know this uh, wonderful passage, or it's actually a poem, let me see if I can find this, from E.E. From e. E. Cummings, where he says, to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make every, you everybody else is to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. <laughs> to be nobody but yourself in a world which is doing its best night and day to make yourself everybody else means to fight the hardest battle which any human being can fight and never stop fighting. And so it's hard. We have to work through, as it were, the conditioning, the questionable images. And we try to find, I think part of the search is to say, what really makes me come alive? What really has, creates this energy, a sense of joy, the sense of, oh, this is me, something like that, you know, to, to have experiences like that. And I know for myself, it's, it's not been easy. Now I remember, especially, I don't know, being a student is challenging. <laughs> Right? Everyone here has been a student, and it, it's like we get told, okay, do this, be that, do this. And, and to find, sometimes in being a student, but to find what is it that really makes us come alive. And uh, Albert Camus says that true vocation consists of contacting, or sometimes recontacting, he says, those one or two images in the presence of which one's heart first opened finding the experiences or the images in which your heart first opened, that that becomes a clue to vocation. It's like to ask yourself, when did my heart first open in this powerful way? And what were some of the times where it opened? That would be a clue. You know, for me, it would be, what made me feel really like I was alive? And I remember when I was in graduate school, I was saying, well, I'm studying stuff I really like. And most of the people around me, it seems like they're about 5 or 10% interested. At least that was when we went to graduate school. I went to graduate school like when I was 23 or something. So it was, many of you go to graduate school when you're 30 or 40. It's, it's different. But uh, when I looked around, people didn't seem that interested. They were doing things to jump through hoops to get somewhere and so forth. And, and I would say, well, I'm really, I'm not going to do that. I'm really studying really what I want to. But even with the structures of school, I said, well, I'm at 25 or 30 percent. And that doesn't feel great either. And I would sometimes, when I was, at that time, I was starting to do meditation retreats. And I said, 100 (laughs) percent. I like this. So something is very strong there, very powerful. And I want to live. I want to live so that it has that sense of aliveness and fullness. And I knew that. And it it was a struggle, you know, because there wasn't anyone who was going to pay me for going to meditation retreats <laughs> or the equivalent, right? Or you may find, oh, I, f- I found what I love. I found my vocation. And there's no way I'm going to make any money. <laughs> but how many people have related to that at some point in your life? Right. So, so how do you do it? How, it's, it becomes this, um, this challenge to try to find this, this kind of work that what makes us come alive and to turn it into vocation, you know, uh, I think I've said, I've given this quotation before from Howard Thurman, this wonderful, um, again, uh, African-American mystic and uh, activist 
who set up in San Francisco the first interracial church in the 1940s uh, in, in San Francisco. He said, don't ask yourself what the world needs. So there's a young man, this happened in the early 1970s, someone asked him, I'm really struggling with what it, knowing what to do. How, should I, how can I find out what is my vocation? And Thurman said, don't ask yourself what the world needs, which I thought was a pretty interesting response for an activist. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. Don't ask yourself what the world needs. Ask yourself what makes you come alive and go do that. Because what the world needs is people who have come alive. And so there's this very uh, personal quest to find out what works. And then this challenge of, of finding ways to make that sustainable, economically viable. Not so easy. I know for myself, it's just been, I think the process of vocation for me has been almost like a continual series of steps, you know, where, okay, I just say, okay, what do I most feel called to do now? You know, like I remember, I just, I was reflecting this, I remember certain turning points where, I remember like maybe 25 years ago, and I was finishing being a student, and I was saying, what do I want to do? And I felt called to go out into the world. I had a choice of either going to Asia and studying meditation. I chose to kind of go out into the world and it felt appropriate and it felt part of a vision of trying to help find what would make spirit come alive in the middle of America. So instead of going to Asia, I went to rural Ohio and took a job there, you know, and stayed in rural Ohio and Kentucky for seven years working. And I did have... Um, second thoughts <laughs> over time about whether that was a wise decision, but, but it was a kind of a, it, w- it was a choice that I made. And, and at other times, you know, I have felt uh, sometimes, like I remember, especially eight or nine years ago, I was feeling like I'm working too much. There's something, even though I'm moving in a pretty good direction, I need to make some adjustments. And I need to, and I needed to take time and space for that. Because one of the difficult things about vocation is that it does involve this deep listening, right? And we need, in order to listen well, we need to, as it were, uh, shut out the noise somewhat. And our, a lot of our daily lives are so noisy, have so much static in them, that it does sometimes take this time of being on retreat or going away or being in silence or meditating a lot or somehow having um, access to what's deeper. For some, it may be through art, or through uh, accessing the unconscious, listening to dreams and so forth. But somehow we need to find those, uh, those drives, those images uh, to, to reflect. Um, and there's also, I think, a, a universal dimension to vocation. And this is, uh, this is brought out a lot in the text of the Buddha. I think there's a very personal dimension of really finding what my gifts are, what the world needs, in a sense, but what has me come alive, what feels full, and then it often takes this creativity to make it work economically, you know, because it's tricky, but we're partly doing this together, we're partly creating uh, a culture, you know, we're reforming a culture which can have more room to pay artists, or to pay people who are really helping, you know, I think, I think that would be a positive vision for these times, that, um, 
that we can actually support, uh, find ways to have people be supported for doing what's really needed on the earth, taking care of people. You know, there's just, in so many institutions, you know, everything's getting turned into having computers do the work. It's really, I mean, that's a whole other long discussion, but I think that there's a way that we have to work collectively. It's not just a personal issue, like Thich Nhat Hanh was saying. Not just a matter of me personally working out my vocation, but I think there's a larger thing of how can we collectively create places for people and support people in doing what they feel called to do. I think we can reflect on that as a community. And then there's also this more universal dimension. I think of in the Buddhist text where often it's said at the end of a sutta, the Buddha says of a given person, that person did what he or she needed to do. You know, that there's a sense of that person has done what needed to be done. And that in large part meant to, in some way, connect deeply with the Dharma, connect with the truth of things. So this vocation, sense of vocation isn't just a sort of a personal solution, but it's how can my work also take me deeper into the Dharma, into my understanding, into mindfulness, into wisdom? How can my work be a vehicle for my own awakening, in other words? Because it's that sense of awakening which the Buddha is talking about when he says, that person did what had to be done. It's that sense of awakening, of coming to know one's deeper nature. And, you know, especially in the Tibetan tradition, there's this urging of us to really look at our lives in terms of what do you really want given this short, precious human life? And there's a constant urging. And again, it's probably most strong in the Tibetan tradition where they say, we don't know the moment of our death, but we know that death is certain. In fact, the Buddha's last words were, all conditioned things are impermanent. Keep your practice going with urgency and effort. That's a lot of encouragement. I thought I'd read one passage from, related to this from the Tibetan tradition. This is from a wonderful book called The Hundred Verses of Advice mm-hmm. uh, with a commentary. Uh, the, it's from a um, teacher named Padampa Sangye and with commentary by Dilgo Kensi Rinpoche, who was uh, one of the great Tibetan teachers of the 20th century. He died in 1991. This is what he said. This is the first passage is from Padampa, which I think came from the, came from, I think like the 11th or 12th century. If you wander in distraction, you'll waste the freedom and advantages of human life. People, make a resolute decision now, (laughs) basically to go towards the Dharma. And here's Dogo Kensi's commentary on that. If there is one constant tendency of our fickle and ever-changing minds, it is our strong predilection for distraction. (laughs) Until we learn to master our thoughts and attain true stability of mind, Our commitment is bound to be hesitant and we run the risk of being distracted by activities with little true meaning. Wasting our life and the precious opportunities for the Dharma it has brought us. To postpone the practice of Dharma until tomorrow is tantamount to postponing it till we die. Moved by faith, the hunter, Chura Gompo Dorje, told Milarepa, the great meditator, I've decided to take up the Dharma. But first I have to go back home to take leave of my family. 
I will return immediately afterward. And Milarepa said, make up your mind now. <laughs> if you return home, your family will try to make you change your mind and you will not return. If you ten- intend to concentrate on the Dharma, decide to do it right now. That's uh, urgent. Everyone connect with that energy, right? Um, do not fall into the trap of hesitation. Focus all your energy and devote yourself to practice without letting any other consideration interfere with that. And I think I'll close with um, one of my favorite passages from uh, Walt Whitman, which is also about this uh, sense of vocation and the sense of bringing it right into the present moment with, with urgency. This is from the preface to uh, Leaves of Grass. This is what you should do. If anyone's not sure, Walt Women will tell you what you need to do. (laughs) This is what you should do. Love the earth. This is from 1855, by the way. This is what you should do. Love the earth and sun and the animals. Despise riches. Give alms to everyone that asks. Stand up for the stupid and crazy. Devote your income and labor to others. Hate tyrants. Argue not concerning God. (laughs) Have patience and indulgence towards the people. Take off your hat to nothing known or unknown or to any person or number of persons. Go freely with powerful, uneducated persons and with the young and with the mothers of families. Read these leaves in the open air every season of every year of your life. Re-examine. All you have been told at school, her church, and any book, dismiss whatever insults your own soul. Dismiss whatever insults your own soul. And your very flesh shall be a great poem and have the richest fluency not only in its words but in the silent lines of its lips and face and between the lashes of your eyes and in every motion and joint of your body. (laughs) Thank you. So if everyone knows what to do, we can end here and we'll all just go off and love the earth and dismiss whatever insults your soul. And yeah, so we have some, we have actually a fair amount of time for any discussion or sharing. Please. What was the, didn't you read about God? Argue not God. <laughs> that goes a long way. <laughs> that would resolve about 90% of the issues in the world. Yeah. Please. So my boss and I, Dr. Palmer, uh, we decided we're going to write a book on pediatric obesity Mm -hmm. based on our research. And so also I've been in this program learning about spirituality. It's a spiritual program learning about how not to eat too much, Mm -hmm. which is sort of related to to that. Mm. So looking at this, so the the project of the book would be sort of a social action Mm definitely in this mm. epidemic of this problem mm. yeah, yeah. which is so big yeah. and it's a nursing perspective so that's what we do that's our vocation and yeah. so it's just figuring out how to loop it all together and get going on it yeah. urgently but, but your vision is there yeah Yeah, and it's a beautiful one yeah. and it ties to your own heart it ties to your gifts yeah. and it's de- right. desperately needed in the world yeah. 
So mere practicalities. But there may be, um, if you if you'd like to afterwards, I will I will take the liberty of saying, would you, do you have some time afterwards? Yes. Yeah. Would anyone? Would you like a few high-powered consultants? Yes. Would anyone want to volunteer to talk with her about how to make it practical? Take five or ten minutes with your name again? Nan. With Nan? Anyone have the time or energy to do that? How do you make it practical? Um, well, what I was meaning was that uh, it sounds like there's a vision, but how to, you know, some of the steps are not so clear. Uh, but what I was inviting was just someone, it sounds like you have a vision and you could just use. You know, sometimes what we do in um, in different groups I work with, we have these kind of consulting groups where we might have four people and each of us have uh, five minutes to say, here's my edge, here's what I want to bring out into the world. And I talk about it for five minutes and then I get consulting from the other three for five minutes. And we each, it rotates, so everyone does that. And it's a beautiful way of working with other people. And usually uh, the people that come to that, there's very, very good guidance. You know, so I was I was in, I was taking a risk and seeing if there were people who wanted to stay after and serve like that, yeah. And why don't you just gather after we finish, just back if anyone wants to join, even for a few minutes. Thank you. That might be Thanks might be it. helpful. I think yeah. It might really help. yeah, yeah, yeah. And if everyone wants to do it, we can have like four groups, five <laughs> groups. <laughs> so. Any questions or reflections about right livelihood and vocation? Please. The admonition or advice to uh, just find what it is that makes you alive and yeah. do that and yeah. try to go out and save the world. Yeah. That's a very slippery slope kind of advice. It seems, because my own experience is it's so easy to be narcissistic and, and, you know, waiting until one feels alive or waiting. Yeah. You can just, like, spend your whole life um, trying to get yourself alive. Yeah. So at some point, it seems like you you have to go out rather than in. Yeah, yeah. It's... um yeah, and that, that, of course, that was a report from one conversation. I'm sure there was a context and, and you know, it was, it was um, he wasn't giving that as a general guidance to everyone. To, but, but I think it, it's a good one. But I think what you're pointing to is that it's, uh, we can, since it's, since it's like one sentence, it's not a complete guidance. And part of the guidance would be to avoid the traps of narcissism, right? Or avoid to be careful of being perfectionist or never really doing it or never getting out there. So I think the other um, side of that is to, uh, I, know, I know for myself at times, and probably this might resonate with you, that there's sometimes places where I, well, I probably was um, concerned about failing or concerned about it not working, and so I might not take some initial steps. And, and perfectionism is a kind of narcissism, perhaps. Uh, and so it's really to 
to take the first steps, to try it. What I have, you know, and I have found this over the years, partly taking a teaching role, that uh, what's really important is just keep taking the steps that take you a little closer. It's not to get everything together, you know, to have, uh, you know, some, to work out everything in perfection and then bring it into the world, but it's actually to be, I think it's to be inspired by those moments of aliveness, but then to take some very specific steps to actualize it. You know, so, uh, you know, so for example, I, I, I'm thinking of a conversation with people who, who are interested in doing further teaching, let's say, doing kind of teaching in Dharma or engaged Dharma, which I, I talk with a fair number of people interested in that. And some of them seem to want to get it totally together and have this detailed grand program. I say, no, just teach a class. <laughs> you know, just take the first step. Teach, teach a, offer a three-hour session on some afternoon. See how it goes, see what works, and go from there. Don't try to work it out in tremendous detail. Or, you know, and, and, but just because my experience is, is that, because I think I had that tendency at one point, but it's to take those steps to just get it out there, to get feedback, get things moving. And that, that, that helps a lot. And to, but then but one can be inspired by the sense of, what do you really want to do? And go do that. So does that help a little bit? Yeah, thanks. Please, Naomi. Well, the, um, I think the challenge is, after we find the calling yeah. and, and respond to it, is um, our own nature. Yeah. Because we may have a very worthwhile uh, choice of what we're bringing into the world. But nonetheless, narcissism will arise. Competition will arise. Disappointment will arise. Um, All all of the things that we know about in our nature, in the nature, will arise. And how to stay awake for those tiny little moments of of, um, of doing the big thing mm-hmm. is what I find the most challenging. Mm-hmm. To to uh, to it sounds like there are a few things that you're saying. One is that it's almost like even it's a big thing to find one's vocation because right. <laughs> that's hard. It's almost like and then you know then we were saying well once you find your vocation then you have to find how to make it practical. <laughs> you know so it, this is that we could we could have almost a series of. Ten sessions just on this, you know, because we're, because here we were just starting by saying, how do you get in touch with your vocation and start taking the first steps? Because it's huge to find vocation, and I know, you know, I I talk with a fair number of people who maybe, you know, who, it's like I remember that image of um, that Joseph Campbell used to give of people who find themselves in mid-age that they've climbed the ladder to the top, but it's the wrong ladder. Right? And then they have to realign or the midlife crisis or find out now, you know, people can feel some embarrassment. I'm, I'm 50 years old, I'm 60 years old, I'm asking the questions, what do I want to do with my life? But I think that, I think we can let that embarrassment go and just keep on asking. Because uh, there are any number of people you see who just have this passion which gets ignited at age 60 or even later. That just gets, gets going. So. First, how do we know our vocation? It's huge. It's big. Then how do we uh, make it practical so we can actually spend time there and energy? Huge. Then once we're even doing those two, then how do we, 
how do we work with just the everyday challenges that come up, Dif disappointment, failure? It's like that maybe gets into the more the area of how does our work, our vocation be itself a kind of spiritual practice and what helps me stay balanced? You know, and then we get into all the questions of regular practice, retreats, how do I deal with difficult emotions and so forth. And then, um, you know, and how do I keep on having that vocation be alive? You know, I may have been with it for 30 years or 40 years, and how do I keep it evolving? Huge number of questions here, right? And, and then how do I stay awake for those moments? I think this is what you were asking. How do I stay awake for what's really, those moments when it's really happening, <laughs> right? Which are, which are these beautiful ones that give us, you know, continued inspiration to keep on going. Did I, did I get most of that? Yes. Yeah. I think just what I'm saying is mm. the the vocation may be dharmic. Yeah. But how to do it dharmically yeah. is always a challenge. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's an ongoing practice yeah. and and it's yeah, I'm, you know, you know what we're hearing folks is that even when you find your vocation, you can't just retire and relax. No. <laughs> it's an ongoing. Please, uh, Linda Marie. Yeah. Um, especially if the Buddha um, talked about right livelihood to monks who actually, most of them weren't employed. And, um, yeah. Uh, if, if it might be more uh, in terms of one's entire life, I don't yeah. really believe that everyone has a calling and that mm. I do believe that there are many people who just feel incredibly lucky to have a job to be able to support yeah. themselves and their family. Yeah. So perhaps it's the kind of person you are at work, how, what you like in the mind stream. Are you a good listener? Are you mm -hmm. generous and helpful? Mm -hmm. And what you do before and after work. I'm a little bit afraid of um, some of us walking out of here feeling guilty and knowing that there's not much we can do to change our mm. work. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, those are a lot of good points. Um, I think vocation is, is one's whole life. It's not, it's not so much the job. It's one's whole life. And, um, and the work can be looked at in certain ways. And yeah, I think it's helpful because we may have very romantic conceptions of the perfect job or, or this or that. And I, I was thinking, just as you were saying that, I was thinking of uh, the ancient, well, it's an ancient Jewish uh, tradition of having... Uh, a basic kind of work or craft that contributes to the community and supports oneself and one's family. Uh, but that um, one's, I was thinking of uh, Spinoza, you know, the great Jewish mystic and philosopher who uh, was a lens grinder, you know, and that was his work. That's what made the livelihood happen. And it was part of a life which included this incredible spiritual richness. And I think it was grounded in that work, but it's not like, uh, and, and it had a meaning. So I think there, there are different ways to do it. And that it may be more a matter of really of how one holds one's, um, so, so yeah, how one's hold one, one's work within the context of the meaning of one's life. So, which I think is connecting with what you're saying. Yeah. Okay, so that's so not to over romanticize it to mean the perfect job, the thing I most want to do. But I think there there is that place for how do I 
do what makes me come most alive. And so I don't know. It's it's um, um, there prob- it's probably um, some kind of balancing act between these different kinds of considerations, or something like that. You had a had a question, did you? I was just going to say that uh, a lot of people you're talking about hearing that inner voice of yeah. We expect this grand light to come in the sky and that you're going to be a great scientist or something. Yeah. It may say, I want to pound nails and, and or paint sides of houses. Yeah. But we get very afraid of that. Yeah. Of following the part that really gives us that that kick inside. Yeah. Because it should be maybe I should be a dentist, maybe I should be a lawyer and all that. There may be a part that says I want to lay brick, you know, I I yeah. love I love I love laying brick. Yeah. But we are very afraid of that dumb voice that pops out and says, That's what I really want yeah. to do. That's a great point. We have all the social conditioning that says, yeah. "Okay, okay." When you're listening for what you makes come, al- what makes you most come alive? Well, here are some acceptable answers, and here are some unacceptable answers, right? <laughs> and and so it's it's you're really inviting us to be careful of that kind of uh, almost like a self-censoring. It could be. When, yeah. I, when I went towards acting, it's, yeah. all, it's all right to do in the summertime, or yeah. you know, what are you going to do in the winter? It was that type of thing, and. Uh, if you love it, you got to go for it. Yeah. You can't go. How am I going to make a living out of being an actor? You might as well forget it then. Yeah. Yeah. Um, last last question, or I or comment. Just, uh, reiterating what you had said and thinking about it as gifts that we may have gifts to give. Yeah. Yeah. And why don't we keep saying our names? So you're My name is Barbara. And I'm Alan. Alan. And Naomi, Linda Marie, and Nan. And and that's um it, it's kind of the other side that I think it is it fills out some of what I was saying. You know, that that uh uh looking at one's gifts and some of one's gifts might be in the particular kind of work. You know, uh, but some of it's also almost like the inner spirit with which the work is done. You know, I was thinking of uh, I was thinking of uh, this well-known 20th century saint in India named Nisargadatta Maharaj. Well, his work was to um, sell uh, Indian cigarettes at a little stand. I think in uh, I think in Bombay. It's in, is that is that right? I think in Bombay, he had this little stand, you know, and he, he spent his whole day, or a good part of his day, just selling cigarettes. But mostly what happened was people gathered around to talk with him about spiritual matters, and he gave endless discourses under the guise of being a bidiwala. Uh, a cigarettes, you know, forget about questions of right livelihood here in terms of cigarettes, but, um, but there was something that was um, coming forth in the spirit, the energy of his of his work, and the actual work he was doing seemed less important. And so that's the other side of this, isn't it? That's something else to remember. So, because we are sometimes bound, I think this was your point too, that we're sometimes bound by circumstances, aren't we? And it's just something that, given the circumstances, this is the work that I should be doing. And it, um, and yet the spirit of which we do that, you know, we, you know, we've been touched by people with very, very so-called ordinary jobs who have this amazing spirit, right? And so that's, that's part of it, too. So thank you for... This was... Um, 
the second, you know, when we do the discussion, it's always the completion of the Dharma talk, points that were um, not, not made or uh, ignored or, <laughs> or whatever. So, so we're, we're, we're co-authors, aren't we? <laughs> Co-speakers. Um, hmm. Do you have, I'm going to ask, do you have energy for continuing this? Or interested, how many would like to continue this theme? For next time, how many are okay with this or okay with another theme? Okay, I'll I'll take that into consideration and check my inner voice. <laughs> okay, so let's just let's just sit for a minute or so to close. So just letting any reflections or intentions from the morning about right livelihood, about the ethics of right livelihood, how that might apply to my work, both the very immediate ethics of the situation, but then also remembering the collective ethics of the larger society. Then the question of vocation, of the inner call which is both a personal call and a call to touch the universal, the spirit in oneself. And any reflections or intentions which come out of the morning, let those be invited to be present. So we remember, as we usually do, that we do this practice not just for ourselves but for others. And may the fruits, the insight, the learning, the energy of the morning be offered beyond these walls for the benefit of all beings. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.